this is Take Notes with Jen Rafferty, where we move music education in new directions. I'm your host, Jen Rafferty, a music educator, author, and huge social science nerd. And I am so excited to go on this journey with you as we highlight the intersection between music education and the social sciences. This week on Take Notes, I had the opportunity to talk with Scott Sheehan, president-elect of the National Association for Music Education. And Scott and I had a really great conversation about leadership, advocacy within this organization, as well as the responsibilities that we all have to continue to grow and expand through personal introspection. Take a listen and take notes. So Scott, how do you define leadership? I go back to a very simple definition of leadership. I use this with my students all the time. It's doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done, whether you want to do it or not. And it's that last part that really gets you, you know, whether you want to do it or not, it's doing the rain on, I I tie in, um, you know, some ethics with this, you know, doing the right thing when no one's watching, you know, so you're doing the things that need to be done. And I've just always been that person, even when I when I was a kid, you know, I would just see like our, our garden shed would be a mess. And I go out there and straighten it up. And my mom would be like, Oh my gosh, why did you do that? I'm like, cause it needed to be done. You know, it wasn't, I just, that's been kind of in my DNA, I guess, to see that as being helpful to somebody else being, you know, service oriented. And so when I think of my philosophy for leadership, it's just really that it's doing what needs to be done. And, and um, having that service mind towards leadership you know, and and so from there, you know, you can certainly grow. You know what what else leadership means, and and um, for me, I sometimes when I do these talks, I'll ask people what their word is. You know, so if you had to boil down leadership, you know, what's your word? And and I love having that that chat with people because it does create great conversation. And for everybody, it's different. And that's the other thing about leadership. What works for me and what I talk about may not work at all for other people. And I get that. And I, I think there's an art to leadership. It's not a, a one side, you know, if it, if it was like, read the book, you know, and, and take the quiz, you've got it. Now you're a leader. You know, it doesn't work that way. I think it, it's an art. And so um, my word is trust. And I, I used to be communication. If you had talked to me 10 or 15 years ago and, and you said, Scott, what's your word for, I would have said communication because I thought that if you were a great communicator and you were responsive to people and, you know, you were careful on, on what you said and, and um, professional and all those things. And with your communications, then you would be seen or viewed as a great leader and that would lead to respect and all these kinds of things. So communication used to be, but to me, it's trust. It's if somebody doesn't trust you, then they're not going to care what you have to say. (laughs) And so the communication means nothing. They're not going to respect you if they don't trust you. And so as, as I've thought more and more, and I've read lots of great books, the speed of trust and different things about trust the more I see that as a cornerstone or the keystone to effective leadership. Um, And it comes down to what we're doing today, just talking, you know, to getting to know people at their level and, and being truly who you are, you know, and, and not trying to put on an air or a special, you know, put on my big suit and here I am, you know, da da da, and we're going to chat about leadership or something like that. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's getting to know people, the real person, who they are, 
what what are their goals? What are their frustrations? What are their um, aspirations? You know, all of those things. I think um, is how leaders can become effective, and and you it will build that trust. And once that trust is built, and that there's follow through and consistency, and and all the other things, communication, and you know that that's that's how that get keeps continually being built. And and the hard part about trust, again, and I'm not to go on too long about this, but I think the hard part about trust is that it takes you know time to build and and so on, but it can be lost in a second. And it's it's just such a powerful thing in that way that you can blow it all in in the course of one sentence and it will take months, years, a lifetime to build back, maybe never um, once it's gone. And so I really look at it as something that's very, uh, although it's an intangible, but something that's so precious and and something that we really have to uh, protect um, when we have that. So that that's kind of my boiled down versions of, of um, leadership. I find a lot of transfer about leadership skills and, and teaching because from, from where I'm standing, I would, in my vision, I want to see every teacher walking into their school building, feeling like a leader. And, and what, what would those schools look like if everyone truly believed that about themselves and showed up as their most authentic selves as in a leadership position, but there are societal obstacles to that, especially as young teachers, right, of the things that you're supposed to do or supposed to say um, that get in the way. And without that reflective practice, I I think you can just kind of like go along without realizing that there's so much more that you can do and and be. So is reflective practice something that you do in, in your work? All the time, uh, all the time. I, I, um, I, I do a lot of it more verbally. Like I feel like I'm, I'm for me, it works. I'm a verbal person. I love to, I love to what I call debrief, where I, you know, sit down with a friend or a colleague or my student teachers. You know, I, I love working with student teachers because, as much as they're debriefing on the day or the rehearsal or how things went with the students. I'm doing the same thing and also reflecting on how, how I supported them and, you know, all that sort of thing. And so I, I'm continually um, just reflecting on, on all things, you know, whether it's conversations or whether it's uh, meetings or presentations, rehearsals, um, arguments with my wife, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, there's, you know, there's reality, right? It, this is kind of how it is. And, but I'm, I'm a very reflective person. In fact, I was having a conversation with somebody else on another project recently, and she picked up on that. She said, you really reflect a lot on, on conversation. I said, I do. And I, I, again, I just, I think that's who I am or how I work. I, I, I don't like, it was never like a conscious thing for me to say, oh, I need to be more reflective. You know, I, I just think that's kind of who I am. I, I've never really gotten into journaling, but I do take a lot of notes, you know, so as I'm going through conversations or meetings or things, you know, I'll jot things down. And um, I love to remember phrases that people say that resonate and, and that sort of thing. So, but I think that I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that if more people could see themselves walking in as a leader in their classrooms and schools that um, and, and engaging in that self-reflective practice on a regular basis, boy, what a difference that would make rather than 
this is what I expect because this is the culture of the school and I'm you know, supposed to say these things or supposed to do these things. And I, and I do see that a lot. All the time, especially yeah. in the work that I'm doing now. I, I see that all the time. And um, it's, that's another conversation for another day, but, okay. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's opportunity there. And I've seen growth with people doing the work of finding their voice and um, understanding who they are as a professional and, and what a difference that makes. So I want to, I want to shift a little bit to something else that you talk a lot about, which is advocacy and how you leverage your leadership role in advocating for music programs and for music teachers and their students. Sure. I think that advocacy is, is, was a buzzword and has almost become overused and, and people don't really know what you're talking about anymore. I, I, I know it's still the right word and it resonates within certain communities, but with you know, in other contexts, the word advocacy, I've been reflecting a lot about this word actually, because on one hand to some people, advocacy means, um, running in to, to solve the crisis, they're going to cut a position or they're going to cut my budget or they're going to uh, hurt me and hurt my program in some way. And so that's advocacy. In other uh, contexts, advocacy is, um, is the public policy and working at the legislative level, you know, state, uh, school boards, you know, presentations or federal level, NAFME, Capitol Hill kinds of advocacy work. And, and so I think that first folks need to really understand what it is that they're they're asking or what it is that they're trying to do um you know i see uh pr like public relations as as sort of a a, a branch of advocacy and i do have a background in marketing that has helped me a lot with with those sorts of things to make sure you're spreading the good news and you're highlighting the positives that that are happening in programs on a regular basis and that that the music program isn't something that's often a corner hidden in the school that nobody ever knows about you know so i think pr is part of that i i define when i when i talk about advocacy i personally define it as the art of building relationships and going back to trust and going, you know, and all those things that I, I see advocacy as building relationships, period. That can be with administrators, colleagues, students, certainly parents, um, legislators, you know, all, all the different constituencies, really everybody that you want to want to go through. I, I think a lot, one of my hopeful goals with NAFME is that we have been advocating about music education kind of the same way with the same approaches for decades with about the same results. You know, we're not really um, making a huge dent in the more students have opportunities for music in schools on, on a large scale. Is it happening in some places? Absolutely. Um, but I think that part of that is people see advocacy um as something that you do when you're at the concert or or at a you know conference or something and we're we're talking and training advocacy to the the folks who already believe in music and we have very 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 little penetration to the public at general you know to the larger the larger public and i i think that has to change i think that the messaging and how we approach the conversation has to change on who you know, who it is we're advocating to 
and four. I mean, and then, you know, I can go down this whole um, rigmarole of um, how how we look at advocacy front through the lens of DEIA and the work there. And what, when we talk about equity in music education, you have to talk about advocacy. I mean, the, the one doesn't exist without the other. Um, and yet some folks are, are reluctant to, to have that equity conversation. And so when you are, you know, if that makes you uncomfortable and you're not willing to go there, then you're, you know, are you really truly going to make a difference uh, as an advocate unless you're continuing to talk to the same people to get the same result and, and so on. So I, I think that in many ways, our advocacy efforts have been spinning um, without really you know, changing what we do um, and, and really changing the, the types of conversations we're having. So, uh, you know, that that's part of it. The other thing I think, too, is that we we don't necessarily, and I'll just say it, value what other people bring to the table. You know, that when I say other people, I'm not trying to other anyone, but I'm, when I'm saying, you know, I'm thinking of NAFME um, and our advocacy shop, which are some great folks and they understand Capitol Hill and they do really, really great work. And there are great folks all over the place, you know, that understand music education in, in other places and different places. And we need to be able to, to listen and work together to bring that so that everybody's next door neighbor understands um, why music is so important. And this is what we're doing. I, I have a real quick analogy to all of this. So when you know, 10, 15 years ago, STEM kind of revved up in the schools and now, you know, there's STEM everywhere. There's STEM clubs, STEM t-shirts, STEM competitions, you know, STEM, STEM, STEM. It was a marketing piece. It, it was folks from science, math. Tech. It's not that there's anything new necessarily. I'm not saying that there isn't some, some cool new technologies and innovations that are happening in STEM. I'm not putting that down, but the, the core fundamental tenets, uh, you know, of science and technology, math, it's still there. It's the same stuff that's been taught for decades, yet it became all the rage and quite frankly, to the detriment in some cases of arts programs. Um, and, it, and to me, I see it as a marketing thing. It, it, folks got together, they got the funding, they put together this package and they went you know, wholehearted. And so when you do talk to my next door neighbor who doesn't have children in a school and say, do you know what STEM is? And they're, pro- they're going to probably say yes. And they're probably going to, is it good for children? Well, well, sure. Do they know what music is? Yes, absolutely. But I don't know that they know what music education is as, as we see it in schools. And obviously that can be very different depending on where you're at. And um, I don't know that they would know, uh, well, you know, I listen to the radio and I, I identify this way and with music. And I, I feel like there needs to be um, a broader context of, the value of all musics and not just a traditional canon. Cause I think there we get ourselves locked into this um, pedagogy uh, of, of traditional mentalities. And when that comes into play, then the, your next door neighbor has that uh, impression of what that music making is and whether or not they see the benefit for children for that type of music that they may have experienced when they were in schools is a whole nother type of thing than what that can be. So I could go on and on and on and on, but I think that um, how we advocate, who we're advocating to, and the idea of really trying to 
rebrand what advocacy means uh, in the larger context is something that I, I hope to see us be able to do hopefully through NAFME's leadership, but I also recognize it's not going to be only through NAFME's leadership. It, it has to be with a much broader context um, for everyone. I, I really truly believe that if you're truly buying into culturally responsive pedagogies, teaching and so on, that's your first step. You know, that's your first step. Because if you can be relevant to the student population that are, are in your, in your culture of your community and your school and everything, that's where it starts. That's how you build it. And from there, you know, you reach the parents and then you reach the community at large and, you know, and then it, it's got to grow. And I think so many people view advocacy as this top down sort of thing. Like, you know, you, you call the advocacy team, you know, you call the gens or the Scots to come save my program. What well, doesn't work that way at all. And I, I wish more people would see that it's it's really, truly at that grassroots, very beginning, what you're doing in your classroom every day, ad, that's the advocacy. And then all the other stuff that goes with that to, to promote that in the PR, but yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's weaving what you do into the fabric of how your school district exists. So they can't cut it because it's part of the foundation. Right, it's the culture. It's the culture. It's just what we do here. This is who we are. So with that kind of um, idea in mind, I wanted to talk to you or ask you a little bit about the things that you had mentioned about your view and your vision for how we can um, create this culture of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our music programs at the national level. Well, yeah, I, well, to be at the national level, it has to be at the local level. And, and I, I think that it's, I struggle a little bit for, of, of the, the paradox, it really is a paradox of what should come from NAFME or from, you know, national leadership in whatever association it is, and what, what should come from the ground, because, you know, ultimately, it should be a, a very symbiotic relationship where the, the people at the national level are listening intently and with you know true listening and hearing what is going on in schools and classrooms across the country and at the same time being able to provide resources and being responsive to what they hear right and and so i i think it, it and then you have the state kind of level leadership and thing in, in between and and so i feel like there's got to be a good flow uh in that way and so to even be able to approach conversations about diversity, equity, access, inclusion, all of that sort of work, or even to, to take it further to some social justice pieces, I think that we we have to have great communication. And I'll go back to trust there, because that I think it comes back to folks may at the local levels may not trust the information or trust that this is the right path that we should be going down. And so um, that in and of itself kind of creates the, uh, can create a divide on the impact that a national or state level leader or program can have at the local level if that communication and trust isn't there. So, um, you know, I'm not trying to outline the roadblocks there. I, you know, there's definitely a lot of, of tremendous amount of work to be done um, to establish that clear um, system of how that can work together. But I, I think the biggest thing that can impact it all is, is, is at the local level, and that is to hear and understand what music teachers are going through, what, the, what experiences the students are having um, on a regular basis. 
and, and what, what are the, the realities of, of any school situation? And then what, what does that mean? And, you know, so I go back to this culturally responsive pedagogy where <laughs> you can't have equity without that, right? If you don't understand the students, you don't understand the culture and the values of your community, then you really don't know how you can bring about equity. Um, I, I think that a lot of the work can be done through the language and the way we speak and the and the um, beliefs that people have. I, I think it, you know it's not something that is achieved. This is all again my view. My view. I you know I read a lot. I have a lot of conversations about this, and I don't think that equity is something that will ever be achieved. And you know, check it off the box, or I've learned all this, and now I can go teach equity somewhere or whatever. I, I think it's it's the language that we use. It's the beliefs that we have, and those beliefs then affect the language. So to really to be able to get to the roots of how to bring about equitable practice and look at bringing systemic change and figure out the power structures that are involved in all of this, you have to go down and understand and listen and hear what's going on in, in the community. And um, it, it's not easy work. It is, it's not easy work. You know, it, it takes time. And in order for that, back to what I said at the beginning of this, you know, for in order for the national to be responsive to what's going on at the local, and you know, no one's going to see my hands moving around, but, but you know, you, to, that, that has to have that great communication um, to really be able to understand, um, to, to achieve some level of equitable practice or systems. And, and, and I think that we are starting to look at that. I know NAFME for sure is looking at our policies, our practices, our ways of thinking, the language that we use and, and trying to be much more responsive that way. And I, a lot of states are too. And, I, and I'm excited to see that because I, I, you know, in five years from now, let's hope that the culture is shifting and that we're seeing um, people really valuing more people and more, more types of music experiences. So that brings me to my, my last question that I always ask. And you're right. There's so much to talk about. I hope we can talk again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you're just like, we're just, you know, breaking the surface right here. Um, sure. I, I always ask, um, what, what is your dream for the future of education? If, if you, the biggest possible dream, what, what do you want to see? Well, from a music standpoint, I, I would love to see us not have to have conversations about advocacy anymore. <laughs> I would love to see, that music is valued in all kinds of music and, you know, different music and from different cultures. And, and it's valued because it's music and it's valued be, because it's good for students and good for children and it enriches our lives and it helps us find our own identity. And it's, you know, it's all the things that music does for people that, you know, you can't quantify, you can't write the research paper on, you know, you can try, <laughs> but you, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's that day I had, uh, you know, playing my trumpet in high school band that changed my life and said, I got to do this forever. I was going to be an architect, you know, and but I like to build things. That's maybe part of this whole, <laughs> whole thing, but you know, it, um, you know, it, uh, it's, it's that we all need music. I'm a big, believer in the whole multiple intelligences and the Howard Gardner uh, research, you know, of how part of how we know who we are in this world is through music. And everyone has the, the right to uh, discover that for themselves in their authentic way through the music that is authentic to them. And um, 
and that they find enjoyment from. And if it's from the canon, great. And if it's Beyonce, great. You know, that's there. There shouldn't be a judgment between that. And so I would, I would, my, I guess my dream would be that number one, everybody has that in their lives. They have music in their lives, and it means something to them. And part two of that would be that it it is equitable and that it it's the judgment isn't there. You know, all these these. I've, I can I get to make the choice because I've got the power to say this is what we're playing in, in rehearsal today or this is what we're going to sing in class because and never listen to their students. You know, I, I hope that um, my dream would be that it's a, a collaborative effort all the way around and um, teachers see themselves as as just part of that and not the end all be all. I, too, would love to live in a world where we no longer have to advocate for music education, where it is valued by everyone as a truly essential part of a child's education. And I would also love to be in a world where we embrace the lived experiences of our students and validate their musical preferences and individual musicianship and musicality. If you want to talk with Scott and learn more about the NAFME initiatives for advocacy and diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging, head to nafme.org. The link is in the podcast notes. Until next time, this is Jen Rafferty. Have a wonderful day. This podcast was brought to you by Jen Rafferty Music, cover art by Molly Reagan and Good Neighbor Art, and music by John Kiefner.